Welcome to Pandemics and Liberal Arts, a podcast from the faculty of Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am one of your hosts, Chris Garretts, professor of history, joined as always by Amy Poppinga, also a professor in the history department. And today we have two very special guests, and so I will let them introduce themselves. Uh, so I'm Wayne Rosa, professor of art history at Bethel. And I'm Amanda Hamilton. Um, I teach all levels of painting and a foundations course in composition, color, and ideation. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, or if this is your first time, what we've tried to do is to think in the midst of the COVID pandemic, why it's important to do things like the liberal arts. And so we've talked about our own discipline, Amy and mine, history. We've talked to a philosopher, a psychologist, last week to a mathematician. But since we're talking about the liberal arts, it seems high time that we actually talk about the actual discipline of art itself. So I don't know which order you want to take this in, but Amanda and Wayne, what role does your department play within the larger curriculum of a liberal arts college? Well, um, I'll, I would say two things, creativity, which I'll let Amanda talk about. Um, but uh, from, from my part, um, art, art as a visual discourse. Uh, and it seems to me most people appreciate art, uh, thinking of it as uh, aesthetic pleasure, uh, maybe even entertainment, um, something they certainly might enjoy. But uh, too few people understand it as one of the major forms of discourse in culture. Um, the way I got into art history was I began as a philosophy major, uh, very much loved ideas, took a lot of history, decided to get a BFA in studio painting, and finally realized all of these things are encompassed in art history because there is a visual discourse. And so a lot of what I do is actually deep visual literacy to understand that vi visual works, while they may be pleasurable aesthetically, are philosophically, psychologically, uh, economically, however you want to look at it, um, deeply formative because the role of the image, uh, which links all the way back to us being in the imago day, uh, the role of the image is um, primal. And Amanda, when you describe yourself as a professor in art who teaches painting, I think most people probably have some sense of what painting means, but what does that mean within the context of a college, of a university that you teach painting? Yeah, I would love to actually um, jump on to what Wayne was just describing. I think, you know, in my intro painting classes, um, we, we talk a lot about just technical basics. How does paint work, the materiality, um, technical possibility, and like just the sensuality of the medium. It's a wonderful plastic medium that is full of lots of possibility and mystery and can lead through representation and almost photorealistic images all the way to abstraction and expressive works and even work that exists off the canvas entirely. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about just basic technical skills, there's the challenge and pleasure of learning how to do something, right? And whether for, for many of us that could be uh, gardening, working in a wood shop, learning how to edit video, like there's a lot of creative outlets for how process can be a challenge and painting is in that category too. But I think in the university, the goal is that we're taking that technical skill and we're building on it to step into the space that Wayne's describing of it being a visual discourse. Um, I think that it's um, much, much more exciting if you really spend the time to get curious about what painting can do. I'll just speak to painting specifically since that's my world. Um, you know, painting can record historic events and tell stories. Uh, painting can ask really big philosophical questions about being and presence. 
Um, a lot of people, it's interesting, I get students in my intro class who um, really want to self-avowedly say like, oh, well, I don't like abstraction. And it's interesting sitting alongside them through the semester as we start to explore um, and they realize that maybe the question is, I don't understand abstraction. Um, you know, I sometimes say to them in terms of like the language metaphor, none of us go into a library, pick up a text in German, flip it open and say, well, this is nonsense and put it down, right? We mostly pick it up and go, oh, uh oh, I don't speak German. And so I think that one of the joys I get as an instructor in the larger university is helping students to really unpack and understand that it is possible for them to learn to speak that language. And like anything, it takes more um, investment, right? To understand what is the history of painting? It has its own history and discourse and dialogue. Um, in the last century, it's been wild in the history of painting as painters responded to wars and removed the figure from images for various social, spiritual, political reasons, moved into abstraction, moved back into figurative work. These things are all embedded with our history and our experiences as humans throughout the, the things that we, we experience corporately and individually. So I think that once, once people realize that the history of painting is actually deeply woven with all the other ways we think about history and human experience, it's like a light goes on and it opens up this whole world of thinking not just about you know, Bob Ross style, how do I paint some good looking trees, but actually how might painting be a deep space of inquiry, perception, expression, um, yeah. That's great. I mean, that's so interesting, Amanda, because it actually leads perfectly into a question we have for you. This podcast came about because Chris and I were having a, um, we were just having a friendly phone conversation, check-in with each other, and we were talking about what was going on in our classes, and then we were talking about um, just kind of both of us, our viewpoints, and how we were experiencing what's happening um, in our society right now, and then we realized the ways in which it's made its way into our classes and how as historians, we both not only are thinking about that with what we're teaching our students, but also how we ourselves process what's happening as historians and recognize that that's part of our personal process too. So we're just curious, what does it look like to sort of teach in your discipline right now? Do you talk about or respond to COVID in certain ways? Um, and you know, like, what does it look like to teach studio art remotely? Oh, those are two really big different questions. Maybe, Wayne, do you want to tackle the first question? Well, yeah. Um, and actually, I was listening to your, I think it was your pilot podcast, Chris and Amy. And, and one of the things you moved into was a discussion of empathy. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I think empathy is at the heart of what the visual discourse has been doing uh, as long as it's been around, from literally from cave painting forward. Um, but but I did like the way Aristotle framed empathy, which is under a, a, a concept of catharsis, where to achieve a kind of catharsis, um, you, you have to do a, a whole series of deep activities. You, one is you have to acknowledge the experience you're having. Um, you have to analyze that experience. Um, you have to figure out how to interpret that experience and then to express it by way of representing it as representation, um, such that a viewer then is taken through that experience. And once that work goes out, and you think of ancient Greek theater as the epitome of this, once that work goes out to the community, then it becomes a communal collaborative processing of, of experience. Um, 
and of course artists like to portray the you know the big experiences so if, if you de if you define pandemic maybe broadly sometimes it's disease um, plague in the 14th century was often uh, explored but sometimes it's just broad suffering or war or catastrophe um, you know the aftermath of World War II like Amanda was referring to um, and and the visual language uh, artists really do this very deep processing and try to come to some kind of image that um, distills what that's all about but what's unique to it is it doesn't distill it in a definitive answer it distills it in materials and experientially and expressively so that all viewers have to then grapple from their own angle with it uh, and it becomes an iconic representation um, that the culture rallies around uh, if you think for example of war and you look at images by goya or picasso's guernica um, if you look at images of, of, of suffering and look at Grunewald's uh, Isenheim altarpiece, that crucifixion of Christ, uh, or if you look at Bartoldi's sculpture of uh, the Statue of Liberty, and all of these become really iconic things that the public holds in common as a, as a metaphor, as a symbol, um, and they interpret it continually, and it remains living because of that. Um, even as academic as the Statue of Liberty is, it, it still is, comes up constantly in our in our current political discourse about immigration. Um, so I think that's the function, this deep catharsis that that is a way of coming to terms with experience, celebrating it, giving elegy, mourning, protesting, um, lots of different interpretive possibilities. But um, it, it's such a profound role, and because the image is open, um, it doesn't close down how we grapple the experience, but it, it allows each new experience to, uh, to, to be processed through that kind of image. Amanda, what does it look like right now to teach painting if you're not actually in a studio with students? I, I can't imagine, there may be something has added to that. I suppose a lot of things are probably taken away from the experience. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like in this particular semester, because we had the a really key period of time of instruction that first seven or eight weeks um there's so much that gets covered technically and materially especially in the introduction or foundation courses that having that to build on as we move to a remote space was just invaluable um you know thinking about starting fully um online presents other issues and problems because um you know, just that that material person-to-person -person interaction is so important. Um, I would, I've actually, of course, like like so many of us, I'm reading everything I can about just how this experience is going for other people who are thinking about the things I'm thinking about in my discipline. Um, actually, came across this article. One of my um, MFA committee members, David Pagel, who writes for the LA Times, just wrote about art instruction online. And I'll just read this because this is such a great encapsulation of how it feels to me. Um, he says, that the article is called, I'm teaching on Zoom, and I've got to admit my students are missing out. And he says here, teachers' freedom of movement is constricted. Rather than engaging a work spatially and at our own pace, we look at it while seated at a desk. Gone is the participatory thrill of seeing something across the room, swooping in for a detailed look, 
following our eyes as they dart and linger, sometimes ricocheting from one piece to another and pausing to rest, savoring a particular passage, gesture, or, pass or pattern. Um, the real question may not be, how can you possibly teach art online, but how can you possibly understand art online? And I think there's a real challenge there because we do miss that spatial back and forth, right? We move our bodies when we look at something, we come close to it, we move away from it. When you look particularly at a painting from far away, you may take in this whole image or field of something that's very large. And as you move up, it becomes a completely different object. It turns into texture and color and, you know, um, surface quality, the way the light might glint off of a certain chunk or swoop of paint. <laughs> so, you know, I think those are things that, that are, that we do miss. Um, in my classes, I've been having students take detailed shots of their finished work as well as the whole work and upload those to um, shared Google uh, slide files. So for instance, in, in both my intro painting and my advanced painting, we have you know dozens if not hundreds of images of details of the surface as well as the image of the painting itself. Um, and that really helps us in critique as we're working remotely to have a better sense of the materiality um, but it is hard. It's not the same as being able to, you know, physically in your body walk up to something and feel the scale of it being either very large or very small, very intimate or encompassing. Um, so yeah, it's it is it's challenging. It's challenging to teach the technical. Um, I find that it's still as exciting to talk about the ideas, right? So we can talk about the implication and the connection to historical or contemporary practice. Um, and that part seems still really lively and rich. Um, but yeah, it's hard to, it, the materiality piece is a challenge. And then of course in the studio, I have just loads and loads of different mediums, materials, um, things that I would have the students experimenting with that I can't necessarily send out uh, material kits the same way that we have shared materials in a shared studio. So that is a bit of a loss. Um, I feel like when I when I talk with my students, I actually just sent out a course poll. It was interesting to hear so many of the painters felt like they, they would rather take the class in the studio, but that they have loved having the independence and privacy to work on their work without feeling like other people are aware of all the ups and downs as the work goes through different versions and conceptions. <laughs> Um, so I think that kind of inner critic that we all feel like, is someone watching my work? Am I being judged? Is this okay? I think it's easier for students to turn that voice off when they're working in privacy than when they're working in a shared studio. I think that um, as someone who has been getting to sit in on your class and um, watch your videos, what you just described is, for me, the number one thing I would say about it as somebody who doesn't have previous experience with any kind of artistic training. There's such a um, intimidation factor, I think. Mm -hmm. And so what has been so fun for me is exactly what you just said, where even though I'm sure that part of good process is to have build confidence by having other people look at your work, I cannot believe how much I have enjoyed being able to build my own confidence because I am by myself and I can repeat what you just said 15 times if I need to in your video. And um, it feels like just you and me. And it's been such an interesting, I mean, truly, it's been such an interesting experience that I thought, wow, um, 
I think it's grown my own confidence in a way that I would I would be way too intimidated to ever take a class live. <laughs> but well, I don't know. and your joy does. I mean, I can say as your student, Amanda, what you said when I'm watching your videos, it's an inspiration to me as an instructor because your joy over what you're teaching just starts to take over when you speak and you get more and more excited because it's clear you love the, the actual process of teaching. Well, that is great to hear. <laughs> I feel, um, you know, I would, I'd say that probably most art educators are a little bit loath to put things down in a kind of how-to format because most of us are actually skeptical that there is, you know, a single how-to. Like it, it seems to undercut a little bit the, the thing that we're trying to also express, which is like take risks, go crazy, fail big, get back to it. Um, so always one of my anxieties is by putting out a video of, you know, here's an instructional way to deal with ideas or materials that the student will feel like this is the only way, which is definitely not the intention. It's like, here's a way to, you know, dip your foot in this pool and get some experience, try some things. But ultimately, we're hoping that they're synthesizing that um, with their own, you know, values and cares. And, you know, I've got students in my advanced painting class that are doing work that has to do with, um, you know, kind of natural, um, that, like I have a student who's been going out thinking about ecology and actually since we're working remotely, she's been driving to places, um, looking, you know, going to Taylor's Falls and really looking at the land and thinking about how that space is informing her interest in kind of field notebooks and making images as note taking and observation and deep perception. Um, I have other students that are making work about um, the political situ situation in Puerto Rico and protest work. Um, I've got students that are thinking about the organic nature of um, materials and dyes and how can you actually transform found material into color to then make the work from. Um, or students that are working conceptually that are leaving temporary marks that are out of paint in the landscape that they know are washing away. Um, that this particular project is uh, called I Was Never Here. And the student is thinking about in this moment of quarantine, what does it mean to be present, to not be present? Um, you know, and in a lot of ways, the metaphor of how we pass away. Um, so, you know, it's just, there's, it's so exciting to see the way that students bring wider interests and passions and the humanities and the sciences into their practice. And that's really what informs and drives um, what they want to make and how they want to start conversations and investigations through that. So I kind of knew this would happen talking to you two that we would probably want to go off script because you bring up all sorts of really interesting ideas that I want to ask about that we haven't necessarily anticipated. So I'll, I'll veer in this direction. So Amanda, either as you do work yourself or as you talk with students or Wayne, as you think about maybe some of the previous works you mentioned coming out of catastrophe, whether it's epidemic or war, how much are artists conscious of, I'm responding to this particular moment, I'm responding to this crisis, I'm trying to articulate a sense of isolation or a sense of mortality, or I'm trying to do something cathartic, or is that something we have to look back on later to recognize in the work? Uh, all of the above, I would say. Um, because on, on, one, I mean, on one level, there is always probably a somewhat uh, rational artist's intention at work. I mean, you, you can't just randomly pick up a brush and start. Um, but the but what's very big in the arts is is the process, and so you can start out thinking you know how this is going to go, 
Um, but between your thinking and the materials and uh, accidents and process, uh, it, it starts to morph on you. Um, and, and then that often allows much deeper, more intuitive ways of relating to what you're painting about to emerge. Uh, so that the, the final product will have actually been quite a conversation with yourself, the subject, and the materials before it even gets to something that a viewer would see. Um, and as, a, as an art historian and someone who writes a lot about contemporary art, I can't tell you how often I've had the experience of writing about an artist's work, um, and because they're still alive, them coming back to me and saying, um, you know, that was only sort of what I was doing, or that was not even at all what I was doing. But what you found in my work makes so much more sense, and I, and I now understand what, what it is I've been following um, without quite having, you know, rationally laid that out. Um, and that's part of the discourse of how symbol works versus, say, when I do scholarship, you know, which is why I, I love it so much, because that's, that's kind of how people work. You know, if you, you look at these logical models for COVID quarantine that have been laid down and how impossible humanity is finding it to follow those, um, this is the way reality is. It's a mess. <laughs> um. I want to like share a quote. So one thing that I found in this time, which doesn't surprise me, but it has been actually pretty overwhelming is just how generous artists and the arts, arts community are. I think there's like a generosity in making work in the first place. Um, you know, obviously there exists in our discipline and art world that is like a major capitalist machine and there's a lot of money that changes hands, but that's a pretty thin sliver of how most artists are existing in the world. Um, I think there's a real, generosity of of like engaging sharing investing in the work and once we all went online i can't even tell you how quickly artists educators like formed groups whether it was instagram facebook shared google folders and it was just like wildfire like people were willing to share resources and like coping strategies and grant access for support um and so i just have found a lot of for myself, a lot of support in how can I work well with my students remotely? How can I as an artist sort of take a deep breath and like live into this moment and this space? And one of the quotes that I came across that a friend shared with me and Wayne, I don't know if you know this, but I think you'll love it if you don't. Um, Robert Adams, who is an American photographer, wrote a book called Art Can Help. Um, I've just ordered this. Uh, we didn't have it in the library, but um, it seems incredibly promising. But here's a quote from the introduction. It is the responsibility of artists to pay attention to the world, pleasant or otherwise, and to help us live respectfully in it. Artists do this by keeping their curiosity and moral sense alive and by sharing with us their gift for metaphor. Often this means finding similarities between observable fact and inner experience, between birds in a vacant lot, say, and an intuition worthy of Genesis. More than anything else, beauty is what distinguishes art. Beauty is never less than a mystery, but has within it a promise. In this way, art encourages us to gratitude and engagement and is of both personal and civic consequence. I think that is such a beautiful, powerful encapsulation of, you know, I, I have these moments in, in times of difficulty or quarantine where I say to myself, well, what in the world, like, how can art possibly matter? Um, you know, and looking at the suffering that people are going through and the loss that people are experiencing. And I do have moments where I think this just seems like a, a side uh, of side concern or value. 
And then I, you know, flip that coin entirely. And it's like, how in the world could we proceed without this? This is the way, you know, that we humanize our experience, that we connect to each other. It's a way to to process, to share. And for me, I find it's a way to be deeply, deeply present um, with all my fears, with all my anxieties, and to look often like at the the created world, like looking at nature and looking at um, I don't know, just just observational practices. I make abstract paintings right now, but just that fact of observation and perception and being present is such an important way for me to encounter, um, yeah, me meaningful ways of expression and, and question. And I think that, you know, for, for my students, I'm really encouraging them that at this time, because so many of them have shared with me that this has been a really hard time for them. And just trying to encourage them like, yeah, you could zone out and watch Netflix all day long, or you can zone out and make a painting all day long. And one of those things is a lot more productive and centering than the other, you know, and there's nothing wrong. Like we all watch whatever we watch, but I think there's, there's kind of art can be a really healthy place to express, to mess up, to explore um, in a time when, you know, things do feel precarious and, whether that's emotionally or financially, you know, so many folks are finding themselves in a space that there's a lot of fear and anxiety and to be able to engage in a process that um, can focus in and center, you know, your heart, your energy, your attention is a really healthy coping mechanism, <laughs> frankly. Well, as we come to the end of the episode, you two, um, we always like to close by asking you something just beyond what we've talked about. What, what is something else you are doing or that you will be doing this summer, this fall that uh, excites you, that energizes you, that maybe you haven't talked about yet? Uh, well, for me and in, in my studio practice, I'm right now working on something I've never done before, which is a kind of a visual response to a poem uh, by Mary Oliver. Poems called uh, "Old the, the Old Poets of China," and uh, it's a it's frankly it's a poem about growing old and how you want to end your life, whether it's um, by letting the world's busyness enclose on you or whether it's by um, taking on a the idea that the fresh stage of old age is a stage of uh, meditation and contemplation and prayer, um, a kind of a kind of new dimension of spirituality, and it ends with the old poets of China going far and high into the mountains and then creeping up into the pale mist. Um, and so I'm doing a series of ink wash drawings that each image is a meditation on uh, half a line from that poem. So there'll be about 15 drawings and they'll be interspersed with the poem. Um, it, it's, it's really been very, very exciting and taking me places I've not gone before in my thought and my work. Amanda, how about you? What's something else that uh, you're taking energy from or joy from? Oh, um, well, since we've been working remotely, um, I have a 13-year-old daughter, so I've been, you know, um, balancing my teaching responsibilities and doing school at home and have really transferred my studio practice home. Um, I haven't been able to be in my studio. I have a small space in the Northeast Arts District. Um, so that hasn't been super available to me because of this circumstance. But um, I took a note from a few art friends on Instagram who had been doing these kinds of mail art uh, postcard exchanges and things like that. So I've been working on postcards and I 
just put out on my Instagram that if anyone wanted mail to let me know and had no idea that I needed to then generate 45 new mini paintings. <laughs> so, um, that's been super fun actually and um, energizing to just feel connected and generous and get some work out there and um, do what I tell my students to do, which is make a mess and take a risk. And so I'm actually really enjoying that process and I'm about three quarters through with that. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to getting back to my studio. Um, I've been working on a project where I'm printing from uh, the abstract paintings that I make, which are very textural. So basically using the paintings as a printmaking plate. Um, and so I have a positive and negative impression and it's a, it's a challenging process. And I'm, I just have been learning a lot about it the last year. So I feel like I've got some good speed behind that and wanna dig into that when I'm back in my studio with all my tools and equipment. All right. Well, we want to thank you too. It's, um, I mean, it's generally, it's been fun to do all these podcasts, especially with you two. Uh, but it's also just good, I think, for the two of us, if I can speak for Amy here, just to be reminded that we have some deeply cool, thoughtful, creative colleagues at Bethel. And we don't get to bump into each other uh, around the hallways. So to actually take half an hour just to talk about what we do is really, really encouraging and energizing for us. So thanks for making the time to do this. Um, we also then want to thank previous colleagues, uh, Nathan Gossage, Will Fredrickson, Sarah Shady. They all gave up some time to talk. Sam Mulberry has been sitting there quietly recording, producing this whole thing. And Amy, I just want to thank you for giving us the idea of doing this. I've really enjoyed these, these six weeks of podcasting. Well, I'm always, ha well, most of the time I'm, I'm happy to let you speak for me today. I was happy um, and I would just agree. It's just, I was just sitting here thinking what an honor it has been to hear um, what everybody's doing, but to be your colleagues. So mm -hmm. it just um, makes me very grateful for our work environment. So, <laughs> so we agree. We're all awesome. So hopefully you agree. Hopefully this has been fun for you all to listen to, whether you listen to just this one or all six, whatever in between, go back and catch up the ones you missed on. But uh, we do appreciate listeners, you taking the time to hear from us. So on behalf of all of us, uh, may you all have a great summer and may it bring you rest, rejuvenation and peace. Thanks for listening.